You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York, a community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. For if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Or the Lord. A reading from the Gospel of Luke 24, verses 13 through 35. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying, that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. What is not necessary that the Christ, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. 
He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you to both of you for those readings. Um, thank you to Dan Savage. Where's Dan Savage? For killing that wasp that was on the floor earlier in the service today. Speaking of no drama trauma, I, uh, I came down from speaking to you all and I noticed a large wasp crawling on the ground and then I noticed it was crawling away from me and I said, good, this is great. And then I noticed it was crawling towards Steve and I thought, I'm a pastor, I should probably not just be happy that I'm gonna be okay, I should be concerned that somebody else might not be okay. And Steve looked very lost in worship as a good pastor is. And I thought, you know what, let me do the manly thing here. Let me go ask somebody else to do something that I don't want to do because it's icky and disgusting to me. Can I get an amen from some of the ladies? I'm like, you know, I should really get this wasp and trust Jesus, but I'm the pastor of the church. What happens if I get stung and I can't be here? I'm confessing my sins to you. I'm like, it can't go on. So let me go ask somebody else who I don't mind if they get stung, if they would get it. And I went right to dance. Well, first I couldn't find Mike Mandia. I'm just kidding, everybody. Man, you guys are going to make us work for it today, huh? I thought, the, I thought the faithful group that actually showed up to church on a Sunday rainy day would be, like, lively and exciting. So can, can I just hear you? Can we put our hands together? Can you help? We're in the middle of this series, the No Drama Trauma, and we are talking for Easter tide, Easter season. What is it, who are we when things go well? Do we even know that things are going well? We just read about two disciples on the road that didn't even know it was going well when it was going well. Sometimes we trust ourselves way too much and think it's going wrong when it's not, think that it's going wrong when it's really going well? How do we treat others when things begin to go well in their life? Are we patient? See, here's the thing. We think we need the most patience when things are going wrong in somebody's life and they don't realize it yet. That's when we need to be patient with them, amen? But I think another area where we need to be patient, and it's maybe harder to be patient, is when things begin. Everybody say begin. When things be 
begin to go right in somebody else's life, and you're looking forward to the day when everything is going well in that person's life, and they show the first signs that maybe they're moving in the direction you've wanted them to move, we lose our patience, we try to capitalize on it, and get them to go all the way to the good place, and wonder why they don't trust us, and they leave, and they stop talking to us, because we always try to capitalize on the first good moment, instead of letting the plant grow into maturity on its own. Patience is most easily taught when things are going wrong, but it's actually most difficultly applied when they begin to go right. When we start to feel a little better, we want to feel all the way better. When the money starts to turn around a little bit, we start spending it like it's turned around all the way. That one, that one germinated a little bit. Good, 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 good. You get the points. We're impatient, and sometimes things beginning to go well. It's like when you had the whole winter of bad weather, and then you have a really sunny day, and nobody comes to church because they're trying to get all of their excitement out and forget that we have an entire spring and summer to go. Chill. We'll be okay. Everyone will be okay. So we're talking about what happens when things start to go right. And there's one, there's really one point that I want us to talk about today. When someone needs spiritual or relational CPR, when there's somebody in your life that you know needs to begin walking with the Lord or needs to have a rekindled, exciting walk with the Lord, or there's a relationship that's falling apart and you really want it to get back together, or somebody's dealing with chronic debt issues or health issues, and you know that the answer is a better spending habit, a better diet, and on and on and on. When there's somebody who you know needs financial or relational or dietary or Christian or whatever it is, CPR in their life, when somebody needs the breath of God to touch them and wake them up, what do we do wrong when those people begin to show the first sign that they may be getting healthy? The first sign that they may be getting healthy. Do we go too far too fast? Can we enjoy a little bit of that person and enjoy the little bit of trajectory that they're on? Or do we feel the impulse to have to make them go all the way right away? I remember when I was going through a lot of my issues, uh, especially with anger, I would have these moments where I'd hang out with my parents and we would just chill. And I'd hear something like, man, you're nice when you're like this. I wish you could be like this all the time. And nothing makes you want to flip out more than somebody saying, I remember when I was trying to quit smoking cigarettes. Yes, I smoke cigarettes, everyone. <gasps> quit them cold turkey 20 years ago, by the way. Thank you. But I remember when I was like, you know, I'm going to flirt with the idea. I'm going to decide I don't want to smoke these little cancer sticks anymore, right? And I would go like two days, and then I'd really want one. And then there'd be people in my life that would like nag me about wanting another one. Do you understand how much somebody nagging you makes you want to smoke a cigarette when you're trying to quit? If you would just shh. I could probably get through this. But if you stress me out, thank you, Jesus, right? That's what happens. I'm trying to be real right now to wake you up a little bit. I'm trying to say provocative things. Everybody okay? All right. 
I got more provocative things that I could say. Trust me. I have about 40 minutes and a microphone, and I run the place. So I could say a lot of things right now. You're awake now. That's good. I can feel it. It's not really what I want to see. It's what I want to feel. I want to feel that we're together on this journey. So what we're going to talk about today is toxic CPR versus gospel CPR. Let's talk about what toxic CPR is first. Toxic CPR starts with everybody's favorite word, control. When you see somebody whose life needs to change, our first impulse, listen to me, our first impulse, whether you're filled with the Holy Spirit or not, is control. I want to tell them and keep telling them and tell them exactly why it's wrong and exactly how good it could be. I want to control them. Is anybody good at being controlling? Oh. <laughs> People who are refusing to say anything right now are trying to control the narrative. All right, and so sometimes silence is one of the greatest forms of trying to be manipulative and controlling. Rather than just being honest and saying, yes, I'm a control freak, pastor, help! My very first message I ever preached here was like February 12th, 2012. Don't know why they were letting me preach. But I preached a sermon called Control Freaks. Remember that, E? And it was a picture of a puppet master holding all those people. It was great. I spoke with it with authority because I knew exactly how to be a control freak. I knew it. And people who know me think, maybe he still is a little bit. It's fine. We're working through it. You're controlling too. And everybody who is just quiet about it, you're really controlling. <laughs> really. It's easy to want to control people. And then we kind of move from control to persuasion. I'm not going to control you. I'm going to sell you on it. Which is controlling. But it's a feel, it feels a little more moral than trying to control somebody. It's trying to persuade them, to sell them on it. And then we resolve. We want to resolve. We want to fix it. If I can't control you and I can't persuade you, I'm going to try to fix the problem for you. And all of these things break down relationships. Some have said... It is better to walk with a person who's going the wrong way than try to control them from a distance to turn around and have them come closer to you. As we just saw with Jesus on the road to Emmaus, as Jonathan Martin said recently, Jesus loves to be on the road away from himself. They were walking away from Jesus, and Jesus shows up on the road away from himself. Somebody tried to corner me recently and said, do you believe that all roads lead to heaven? I said, I don't care because I don't think all roads lead to heaven, but I think Jesus is on every wrong road. So where I don't think every, wrong, every road leads to heaven, I think every road leads to Jesus. And I think Jesus leads to heaven. And I think Jesus makes a living being on the wrong road because how else could he have found us? Who was on the right road? before he found you. You know what I'm saying? So, we know this. He's on every wrong road. That's patience. We want to fix it. Sometimes when we're talking about the world of addiction, we talk about needing a fix. 
Sometimes when we're talking about how amazing things are, like my mom and dad always like to say, can you bring Theo and Sophia to our house? We need our grandkid fix. And by the time they're done, we're at their house with the kids. Here you go. Like, were you waiting outside of our house for this? I don't know. Tomato, tomato. We may have been. But we talk about things that we want really bad as a fix. And I think the greatest drug ever to face the earth is not necessarily a substance, but I think it's the fix to need to fix. Because why else would we be doing the drugs in the first place? Why else would we be serving these idols in the first place? Why else would we be doing the stuff we do in the first place if we weren't trying to fix something? Cover something, heal something, manage something. So if control and persuasion and trying to resolve things for people doesn't work, what does work? What do we see from Jesus on these two Easter evening stories? We see a more holy CPR. What we see from Jesus is first, community. Then, peace. You ready? Then, everybody's favorite word, Restraint. Restraint. We're going to talk about this. Sometimes people in your life will find God when you could have said something and didn't. And in the space of you restraining yourself, you created a holy space of self-denial for Jesus to have room and say what you wanted to have said better than you could have said it. Sometimes, and I know this is a shock, I am an Italian Pentecostal extrovert. I'm an eight on the Enneagram as somebody bought me a mug today to remind me that I am. The idea that somebody's life could get better if I'm quiet sounds terrible to me. You mean my wife could have a more peaceful day if I shut up? Get behind me, Satan, with that thought. Her life is far better when I keep talking and trying to fix things. She's not here right now, so I, can, I have free reign. Jesus. Holy CPR on Easter Sunday. Number one, community. So here's the deal. Jesus is risen from the dead, and he is now encountering people. Jesus now has no drama. He's walking free. He's walking holy. He has conquered the grave. And he's now meeting people who need to wake up to this new reality that has entered the earth. Look how he is with people who are going to take a long time to understand that things are going right. First and foremost, he enters locked rooms and he shows up on the road away from God. He walks the wrong way and it's such an astounding phrase when you hear it and not just read it. And I heard it again as if for the first time when Marcella read it. When the disciples who were going the wrong way said, here's a nice place to stay for the night, it says that Jesus, indicating that he was willing to go farther, he was persuaded by them to turn in. He was so content walking the wrong way that he needed to be persuaded 
to stop walking the wrong way with us. Think about somebody in your life who's walking the wrong way and now say, what would it look like if I walk the wrong way with them until they're ready to stop? Think about stuff you said and done. The little hints you throw, the side remarks, those Christian sneak attacks. And now look at Jesus. Why are you guys upset? Terrible things have happened to Jesus of Nazareth. What things? Maybe for you introverts, this is fine. But for me, if they were talking about me and I was there, I probably wouldn't have said what things. I probably, the story, the road to Emmaus would have been the story of me almost getting them to turn around but having them go past Emmaus to whatever country is after Emmaus because I would have ruined it. I would have told them the truth. You ready, Salem? I would have told them the truth too fast. I would have told them the truth before their spirit and soul and maturity were ready to receive the truth. The truth will kill somebody if it's said too quickly. Man, I love you guys, though. I can hear the people at home responding better. You know, I'm starting to think this internalizing thing is a real cheap way out from people here. Everybody at the door, Pastor, listen, when it's quiet in the room, we're just internalizing this amazing message. First three Sundays it worked, and then I'm like, wait a minute. (laughs) Help me, Jesus. This is what happens when you talk too many times. Jeff to the left starts to say words. This man is my next door neighbor. I am so happy every single day that I live near this dude. It's wonderful. It is wonderful. He goes into a locked room. Now, this is an interesting one because in a world where we're talking about agency and not wanting to invade people's personal space and we're talking about different kinds of trauma and harassment and all this sort of stuff, Jesus coming through locked doors could sound to today's culture like something not really that great. But here's here's something that always amazes me. Jesus comes through the locked doors, and the first thing he says is, peace be with you. But then in Revelation, it says, behold, I stand at the door, and see, Jesus is the only one who knows when it's okay to not knock. When he knows that we need him to knock, he will knock. And keep knocking, you ready, until he can answer his own knocking from the inside. Yes, internalize that. Jesus enters through locked doors and then opens the door to his own knocking for us because we can't, because of fear, because of insecurity. So Jesus enters and then opens the door for himself. And only he can enter through locked doors because he's the only one who truly shows up into our vulnerability with peace. We always have to knock. Jesus can enter our vulnerability because he is the Prince of Peace. He is the one who doesn't violate. And he comes in, so that plaque from Brother Randy, summoned or not, God is present. 
They weren't asking for him to show up on Easter, and he shows up in the room. They thought he was dead and gone. They clearly weren't asking for him to show up on the road to Emmaus, and he shows up anyway. The thing about Jesus is us going the wrong way, us being in a bad place, us needing spiritual CPR, us living in sin doesn't ever stop him from showing up. You've heard me say it a thousand times, and I'll say it until I'm dead. Sin does not separate you from God. If it did, Adam and Eve would have never heard the sound of God coming into the Garden of Eden. Why were they hiding? Because God shows up no matter what we do. Sin does not separate us from him. Sin makes us see him as if it separates us from him. But it doesn't ever separate us from him. He shows up anyway. The next thing he does is he brings peace. He shows up and doesn't say, you doubters. How many times have I told you? He says these things eventually, but the first thing he does when he shows up into the environment of a person who needs to repent, into the environment of a person who needs their life to be turned around, the first thing he does is he says peace. Now what does peace mean? In the Hebrew language, it's where we get the name of our church from. In the Hebrew, peace doesn't mean well wishes. Peace means perfect flourishing. He shows up and says, we're good. And then all the tension can drop. Hey, I know, Tim, I know you're, you're, you're making some crazy decisions, Tim, and, you know, you don't know that I know about them. And then all of a sudden I'm like, Tim, let's go get coffee together. And the first thing I say before anything else is, Tim, I just want you to know, I love you. And we're as good today as we were yesterday and as we will be tomorrow. Now we can actually talk because the issues we're both facing do not determine the quality of our relationship because we're good. Mom and dad of young kids especially, we have to parent with peace first because our kids need to learn early that their bad decisions don't change our parenting hug over their life. We're here for you because we love you because you're who you are, always. Friends, don't forget to tell each other this. Congregants in a local church, don't forget to be this for each other. We can't be more on with each other when somebody's making decisions I like and more off with each other when they're not. We have to be on with each other because Jesus is always saying peace. He says it both times he enters. He says it twice this first time. And then what does he do? He offers them his spirit, which is what? His self. So not only does he come in and say peace without saying, why are you doubting? Why are you here? Why are the doors locked? Why are you afraid of the Jews? This is really kind of not healthy that you're afraid of a particular ethnic group. This is going to kind of almost mess up the world as the seasons go on. People who are locking other ethnic groups out because they're afraid of them. This is going to be a problem, but that's not the first thing he says. Even though in his foreknowledge he knows the world is going to suffer through this forever, He comes in, and he's seeing the beginning of all the isms. And before he even addresses that, he says, peace be with you. Now here is my very self. I'm fully available to you right now before we even talk about anything. Nothing will cause somebody to keep doing wrong than threat. And nothing will make somebody pause in what they're doing wrong than love. We think threat works. 
But when somebody realizes that they loved me, even when I was treating them like that, nothing makes you want to change more than love. Love makes you want to change. Love makes you want to say, I need to do better. Threat makes you dig your heels in. Say, okay, I will raise you your threat with worse behavior. But love just disarms you. You may, you may talk smack about, okay, good, whatever. Oh, you love me, that's so cute, bye. And they shut the door and you're like, I am a broken human and I need to do so much better. I'm not ready to let them know that yet because my ego is still alive and well. But God, what is this warm, fuzzy feeling I have toward them that I don't want to have right now, right? Like love, what does Paul say? It's like heaping hot coals onto somebody's head and purifying them. shows up on the wrong road. What does he do on the wrong? His presence shows up on the wrong road. And what does he do? He asks questions about the things that he went through that they're misunderstanding. In the garden, Adam, where are you? Who told you you were naked? Did you eat? He's asking questions, even though he knows on the road to Emmaus. Why are you so sad? Well, all this stuff with Jesus of Nazareth. Who? Jesus of Nazareth. He went through all these things. What things did he go through? Oh, you don't say. He died on a cross. And now you're not believing what the women told you that he rose from the dead. Hmm. We have to also work on your view of what women say sometimes. But before we do any of those things, I'm going to feed you. And I'm going to walk with you on the wrong road. I'm going to walk with you on the wrong road until you're the ones who decide to stop. The church is stopping way before Jesus. Way before Jesus in people's life. The church is still stuck at Jerusalem and Jesus is almost to Emmaus. And we think we're holy because we've separated ourselves from sinners. And Jesus is walking in the wrong direction with them. And we wonder why we can't feel him because he's with people we would never want to be with. When, when at the Last Supper, when Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot come, you know where he goes? He's going to get Judas. He's going to get Pharaoh. He's going to get Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to get Cyrus. He's going to get Herod. He's going places that we can't go because we wouldn't want to go with him to get those people. He's going where love has no bounds and knows no limits. That's where he's going. He's going to the place that we would call unconditional love. And then he shows restraint. He gets there, and there, there are three words, I think it's three words, yeah, three words, that blow my mind. My mind personally, they might not blow yours. It seems like nothing's going to blow your mind today, but that's okay. That's perfectly fine. But there are three words that blow my mind, and it's the words eight days later. Jesus has conquered death. When Sophia draws a picture, she stops at nothing for me to see it. When I think of an amazing point, I will interrupt everything Jacqueline is doing to make sure she has my undivided attention so I could say, guess what I thought of today? I'm in the middle of something. I'll, I'll tell you while you're doing it. She's like, all right, I might as well just stop and sit down. I made you coffee. What is it you want to tell me? Like, when we have something we're excited about, we want people to know, yes? We need to tell them. You buy a new car, you got to drive by the house of somebody you love and the house of somebody you hate because you want everybody to know that you're doing good in life. I just happened to be in the neighborhood. 
I live 75 miles from your house. Just happen to be in the neighborhood. Like, this is what we do. Jesus is there offering peace, offering the Spirit, and Thomas is not there. And he never says, where's Thomas? He never says, how come you guys couldn't hold his doubt long enough for him to be here? He never says, when you see him, tell him X, Y, and Z. It's restraint. Does he want to say, where is Thomas? He said, Adam, where are you? Of course he wants to know, but he doesn't. He restrains himself. Eight days later, he shows up again, and guess what the doors are again? Locked. They're locked. And he shows up and says, they were locked eight days ago, and I said, peace be with you. What is wrong with you people? That's not what he says. He comes through the doors again. He never says, wasn't that just dope that I just came through locked doors? He never even says that. He says, hold on to your seats. Peace be with you again. Why are they still locked? He doesn't say, is Thomas here this time? Thomas says, I'm here. And he doesn't say, where were you eight days ago? And why are you telling people that you need to see me? Why don't you trust your friends? He says, here you go. Touch my hands. Here's my side. Go ahead. Restraint for the love of God. Can we imagine having that much good comebacks and not saying any of them. This is more impressive to me than him raising Lazarus from the dead. Jesus having all the things to say. The best come. He defeated death. He can say whatever he wants and be right. Just think of your character and imagine you were allowed to say whatever you wanted to be said, and it would be right. Do you know how much we'd be saying right now? Do you know what you'd probably be saying to me right now, and I don't want to hear it? Do you know what I'd be saying to you right now, and you don't want to hear it? He doesn't say any of it. You're praying for a child to get saved. They finally come over for dinner, and they say, hey, I was having a really tough weekend. I prayed. And you're like, oh, you prayed? You know what you need to do? You need to come to church. You need to get baptized. You need to sign up for an LTG group. You need to become an usher. You need to work with the kids. You need to join Workday. You need to do this. Next Easter, you're going to get baptized again. You're going to take Eucharist. Are you ready? You're going to be a pastor. God's going to send you to the nations. You're going to be on a plane. Kings and priests are going to bow down at your word. I told you I prayed, and now I'm never going to tell you anything ever again for the rest of your entire life. We crack the, somebody cracks the door open a little bit, and we're waiting with all the angels of the apocalypse. And Thomas is like, my Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't say anything. He says, you're blessed because you have seen and believed. And then knowing that we would read that without being able to touch him, he actually speaks to you next. 
He says, Anthony, you're blessed because you see and believe. But blessed are those who are going to read about this and believe. So he doesn't even leave us out. Community. Peace and restraint. Jacqueline, lovely, amazing Jacqueline, said this. Jesus is unhurried because death is no longer a deadline. And she went on to say, it's a lifeline, which I thought was a really great pun. Death is no longer a deadline. It's a lifeline. Jesus, in the gospel according to Jacqueline, is no, he's not hurried with Thomas because Jesus is no longer trying to say, I need to get all this done before I die. I need to see my kids do X, Y, and Z before I die. Jesus knows death is no longer a deadline, so he can move as slow as he needs to move. And so can you. Because even for us, death is not a deadline. Listen to me very carefully. I will say this as crystal clear as I can. Death is not a deadline for you to get other people saved before you die, and death is not a deadline for them to get saved or else. Because what unconditional love will do on Judgment Day will blow everybody's mind out the back of their head. Our job is to slowly tell the good news at the pace that the person who needs to hear it can hear it. Nothing slower and nothing faster than that. To speak at the pace. You know what leadership is? Do you know what maturity is? It's being able to have convictions and then deliver those convictions at the pace of the person you're talking to. It'd be so easy for me to just say things that people haven't heard before, to say things that this church hasn't done before, that we want to see happen way too early. There's a way that you friend and spouse and parent where you offer the right amount of truth that the person can take, assimilate into their life, and grow from until they're ready for the next thing. You're not in a rush against time, yourself, your image. Some of us are trying to prove to ourselves that we've been good parents by trying to get our kids to walk with the Lord. And it, in some ways, has very little to do with them walking with the Lord and has more to do with us wanting to put our head on our pillow at night thinking we've done a good job. You can move as slow as you need to move. You can move as slow as the pace of the person you're trying to minister to is walking. I'm here today. So many people went faster than I was able to go. A few people walked at my pace, maybe one stride ahead of me. Enough for me to keep moving forward but not lose sight of them. And that's why I'm here. Because a few people slowed down and walked at my pace and kept me walking. Many of whom are in the room right now. So thank you. So what does he do for us? And I close with this. Worship team, you can come on up. How does he make us the kinds of people who can, you ready, Salem? Not just do this for others, but also do this for ourselves. Sometimes we offer ourselves the toxic CPR. We try to control ourselves. We try to pers persuade ourselves. We try to resolve ourselves. And we don't offer ourselves the allowance to sit in God's presence, to receive God's peace, and to realize that we can even restrain ourselves from judging our own self. What does he do? 
In Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve fall, it says they heard the sound of the Lord coming in the cool of the day. And when you look that up in the Hebrew, what it says is they, saw, they heard the sound of the Lord coming at the time that it became cool, which is the evening. They heard God coming at the end of the day. And so Adam and Eve are hiding at the end of the day. And at the end of the day, Jesus comes and finds those two who are hiding. And I don't think it's ironic that it's in the evening on Easter that Jesus comes and finds his hiding disciples. And I don't think it's ironic that the two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus, the early church would teach you, are husband and wife. So here's another husband and wife at the end of a day, hiding and walking away from the presence of God. And like he always does, when we're hiding in the cool of the day, what does the presence of God do? Comes to tell us we don't need to hide anymore. He shows up on the road. And what does he do on the road? He not only comes to see another married couple walking away from him in the cool of the day and finds them, but he also offers them a new meal and replaces the meal that Adam and Eve ate with the meal of the kingdom that we're allowed to eat. And then what does he do after they eat the meal? He disappears. Can you imagine you actually did something right in somebody else's life and they realized it was right and now they're going to turn and you disappear so that you don't get the credit for it? I can't imagine that. I would want them to carry the receipts of who it was who spoke to them that day. Jesus vanishes. And it gives them the space to turn around without feeling like they're caving to somebody else's opinion. It gives them the space to turn on their own. Jesus is so merciful in his restraint. He doesn't even try to get the credit of the souls that he himself created. When they start walking back, we can stand to our feet this morning. When they start walking back, they say this, and this excites me. They said, didn't our hearts what? Somebody say it. Didn't our hearts burn within us when he spoke to us? While we were getting ready for this sermon, if you read the lectionary in the Book of Common Prayer every day, you're right now in the Book of Daniel. And in the Book of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar says, I have set up this statue, and if you don't worship it, I will burn you alive, which sounds a lot like the way we used to preach to people a long time ago. It's really scary when we sound like a pagan king in the Bible and not like Jesus. But we'll talk about that another time in another series. Nebuchadnezzar is saying, if you don't worship this image, you will burn. And I wrote down, thank God Jesus doesn't say that. And then I wrote down, oh wait, he does. But his burning is not like the burning that Nebuchadnezzar said. His burning is the kind of burning where after he burns you, you say, didn't my heart burn when that love was spoken into my life? That's the kind of burning that Jesus offers us. Does he call down fire on us? Yes. The kind of fire that says, didn't my heart burn? He's doing that for you now, and he's giving you that fire to offer to others. 
I want to hear stories of people saying, my heart burned when somebody from that church followed me in the wrong direction until I was ready to turn. Everyone else walked away from me, but somebody from that church kept walking. I'm looking at people in this church, you know who you are because we've had this conversation, who've said to me, early on in my life, I just wanted people, I just wanted my kids to behave. And now, I care more that the door of our relationship remains open than anything else. It takes courage to say that. It takes anointing to say that. It takes facing the fear that you may be allowing people to do terrible things by doing that. That's what everybody's fear is. Why? Because of that first C, control. We know that if we're constantly threatening, we can get people to do stuff or the empty threats of parenting. Sophia, one more time. One more time. Sophia, one more time. And so how many times is he going to say one more time? Obviously, dad can't count. But when you keep the door for relationship open, here's what happens. When that person finally hits rock bottom, and here's what rock bottom is. Rock bottom isn't the worst it can get. Rock bottom is the moment where that person says, I need somebody. We all hit rock bottom every day, hopefully. I need somebody. And when that person says, I need somebody, and they turn around to look at who they could pick to be there for them in their immense vulnerability of needing to repent and live a better life, they're going to go to the people who kept the door of relationship open and walked with them the wrong way. That's who they will go to. That's who you went to. That's who I went to. That's who they will go to. And for that to happen, for us to have that restraint, we need to know that with our Heavenly Father, the door to relationship, as it says in Revelation, her gates will never be shut by day or night. Her gates will never be shut. When we can truly believe that, that all God wants is for me to come back to him, and he wants me to come back to him so bad that he will walk with me the wrong way just to be with me. And when I turn to say, all right, enough is enough, we're going the wrong way, he says, I'll keep going. I will keep going and going and going and going because unconditional love keeps going and going and going and doesn't stop until it has gone farther than all of our sin could possibly take it. When we step into that love ourselves and receive that CPR, that breath of life into our lungs, we will have a capacity to move slow and carefully with those that God has put into our life. Discipline, yes, but not ever at the threat of relationship, at the premise that there's more to you than you're realizing right now. The bad kind of discipline, the bad kind of rebuke is the kind of rebuke where you say, Carrie, look what you've become. That's the bad kind. The good kind is, Carrie, we gotta talk about what you did because you are so much more than that. 
Do you see the difference between those two things? There's telling somebody, look what you've become, Steve. And then they're saying, oh man, I'm so mad at you because you don't really know who you are. You don't know how high your ceiling is. You have no idea what you're capable of right now. There's a difference there. One is rejective and one is an invitation to fill up the measure of who God made you to be. As we come to the table of the Lord, I will quote again and again my good friend, soon-to-be bishop, Dr. Chris Green. Not my bishop, everybody chill. A bishop. I'm too good friends with him to ever have him be my bishop. He, I need to be able to be me around him and say stupid things and have him laugh and not think he has responsibility to tell me to shut up. That's what I need from Chris. Chris, one day, 2018, it was May of 2018, we were in Illinois at a retreat center, and at the end of a long day, everybody's kind of checking out, and Chris says, you know why Jesus disappeared on the road to Emmaus? He says he put bread on the table, broke it, and put it down, and then once the bread was broken, he disappeared. So do you ever wonder why he disappeared? He said, because Christ wanted us to know that Christ at the table has now become Christ on the table until he returns again. So Jesus vanished, but he left bread because that's one of the ways he's present to us until his vanishing comes back into sight again. That's why we come here. Every time we come to the table, we are the disciples on the road to Emmaus. This is why we preach the scriptures first, because Jesus preached the scripture first. And they said, didn't our hearts burn as he preached the scriptures to us and as he broke the bread? That order is vital. He preached the scriptures and he got our hearts ready for this meal that would become our meal until he returns. That's why we come now, because we came in here walking the wrong way. We're gonna receive the bread and leave here turning around and going the right way because Jesus was willing to walk with us the wrong way. How many are glad that Jesus walks the wrong way with you every day of your life? Lord Jesus, it was on the night when you were betrayed when we were all walking the wrong way that you sprinted ahead on the wrong road and suffered the fate of what that wrong road leads to. So that the wrong road has now turned into a cul-de-sac where we can only turn around and go back the right way because of your cross. And so I pray that you would descend on this bread and make it for your people the body and blood of Jesus the food and drink of new and unending life in him, that when we receive this meal confessing our sins, we would be filled with the love that causes us to turn around, go back to a room that is no longer locked but whose doors are open, to be held by your church until you return. With all of our doubts and inconsistencies, paradox and sin, you hold us in this crazy, broken, beautiful reality called the church until you return. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. George will be here. I'm gonna ask if Steve would be over here and you can come down this way and you can come down this way and receive the bread. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle Podcast. 
For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.